And that's the new hit single by the Before Times called Time Machine. Half of Time Machine is made up of my good friend Kurt Riley, my bald friend Kurt Riley, who came down to Nashville for his sister's wedding. We hadn't seen each other in a couple of years, so we had the chance to catch up. As you know, I haven't really been releasing new podcasts lately, but with an old friend here, I was like, eh, why not? So we hung out for a few days, we ate, we drank White Claws. The White Claws were of plenty while he was here. I'm partial to the raspberry flavor myself. And I know what you're thinking, they are not a sponsor of the podcast, but if you happen to know them, tell them to hit me up. Hi, my name's Taylor Berryman and I have an addiction to baseball cards. We spent what an hour at the the baseball card shop today. We did, we did. It's uh, cards are fun over on Old Hickory Boulevard in Brentwood, and uh, I've just been going through all my old baseball cards because my dad brought them, and my garage is just filled with them. A lot of it's worthless crap, but I've I've just been on like this buying frenzy during coronavirus because so I haven't had anything else to do except look at baseball cards and. <laughs> Think about baseball, watch baseball, listen to baseball games. Harken back to childhood. You know? Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's like a a comfort thing. What have you been doing during coronavirus? You know, mostly weeping. But no, <laughs> no, um, no, I, I definitely understand the, the comfort of the familiar. I've been reading a lot of comic books. What are you reading? Uh, boy, The Usual Suspects, Green Lantern, Justice League. Uh, that's about it. Justice Society. Yeah. What do you think of the Snyder Cut? Are you excited for it? How do you feel about it? Cautiously optimistic. Why cautiously optimistic? (laughs) Because, uh, DC, my beloved DC, with whom I've, you know, been in love since 1987, has just been failing spectacularly since... (laughs) For the past 25 years, really. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I don't know if they're going to be able to pull pull it out of the, uh, the trajectory it's in. But, um, you know, the trailer looked quite impressive. And, you know, of course, the, the Batman trailer. Batman's trailer also was impressive. badass. Dude. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. excited for that. Sparkly Batman. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. How funny is that? Yeah. No, I'm Team Edward. I'm Team Edward too, dude. All the way. He's gonna be a great Batman. He's a, he's a great actor. He's uh, underrated. Yeah. No, he's great. And um, yeah, he was great in the Lighthouse. We were discussing earlier the yeah. Lighthouse. Unbelievable film. Uh, worth it alone for that like two and a half minute monologue you'll see with Willem Dafoe. It's insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it looks great. It's very gritty, noir, detective. You know, year two of Batman's career. Yeah. And that's that's real neat. Well, he's never been portrayed on like the the big screen. I would say they did it a little bit with Batman versus Superman. Him as a detective, yes, because he was kind of sleuthing around to figure out who Superman was in in that movie. But this seems like he's straight up like out trying to fit, solve crimes by putting together clues. Yeah, yeah, and we'd see a little bit of that with Keaton in '89 and in Batman Returns. We'd see that a little bit with Bale, especially in The Dark Knight, with the scene with the bullets, you know, with Alfred, and he's figuring out the trajectory and all this and the yeah. fingerprints. Um, but no, not not like this. This is a whole new level of world's greatest detective. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Sherlock's successor. Yeah, I'm uh I'm pretty stoked for it because it looks like it. Uh, the Batman looks like it has the tone of a horror movie. Like mm. when I saw it, it looks like it, it's kind of shot like a saw movie or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. And I concur. Plus it's, it's badass that they use Nirvana in the, right? <laughs> in the trailer. Well, Nirvana is classic rock now, technically. Yeah. It's formatted on classic rock stations, which must, must be strange for Gen X people. It must be surreal. Probably the same feeling I'll get when, you know, they have Franz Ferdinand and the Killers on classic rock stations. Will they ever, though? I feel like they'll never get any fucking love. You don't think so? No, no. I don't think so. Well, they might play like Somebody Told Me or Take Me Out. They, they might play those. But it's so funny in the, the era of streaming, you know, because I would consider them MySpace bands. Like that era, they came up in that era. Um and that's an era that's already come and gone. Because now it's uh, TikTok. As Milhouse has pointed out to me, we're in the, the era of TikTok, you know, in, until TikTok gets banned altogether. Right, right, yes. But um, 
Yeah, it's funny how quick things change now. And especially with coronavirus, I think one of the positive of, of this situation is I think the record labels, for the most part, are going to be done. I think they're, re- they're really getting fucked hard with no touring. No 360. No 360. No way to fuck the artist, dude. <laughs> Which, of course, I feel bad for the artist. Don't get me wrong. But if, if it this means the death and destruction of the labels, because I'm sure they each got like PPP money. They got all kinds of shit. But was it enough to sustain them? I don't think it was, dude. Yeah, well, what I would like to see is, I this is something I've been interested in for a while. Um, I'd like to see more of an organized effort amongst musicians to work collectively rather than in an adversarial manner. They, I mean, since the brass ring is so far out of out of reach, and since you know, since Napster, it's it's been much smaller than it used to be. People are sort of pit against one another, and you know, you fight bands to get slots at venues, you fight bands to get airplay, you fight one another. It's all very competitive. I think if we collaborated and allied with one another, um, it would be better for everyone if we sort of shared the wealth a bit, you know? And uh, How can we, that be done? By u- unionization, organization, you know, musicians saying, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to set rates for how we'll play, what we'll play for. We're going to set rates for what it costs to purchase music for advertising, licensing. Um, the American Federation of Musicians, which has been around since the beginning of the previous century. Um, yeah, I remember reading accounts of Elmore James and Howling Wolf in Chicago in 1950, and they'd go down to the American Federation of Musicians, Musicians local, and they'd pay their dues, and then they'd all set rates for what the clubs would have to pay in order to book them, you know? And that way, everybody was getting a square deal. And yeah, you know, it wasn't perfect. There was some weirdness, but it's better than this sort of dog-eat-dog thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I want to be optimistic about it, but... <laughs> Uh, truthfully, I, I just wonder if people are motivated to help each other out. You know what I mean? Like it, it, that dog eat dog mentality has been around for so long. Maybe the newer generation coming up will be more like that. But I just wonder if like guys like our age, you know, late 20s into our 30s now, we're, we're getting to be the old men around, dude. <laughs> I actually quite enjoy the 30s. I'm having a great time. I'm fucking looking forward to being 30. I turn 30 next year. It's bizarre. (laughs) I'm the same age now that Amir was (laughs) when I met you guys down in Florida. That was 10 fucking years ago. Probably last month, honestly. Yeah, Yeah, it was. Straight down from high school, right? Yeah, Yeah. straight straight out of Maine down uh, to South Florida. And uh, you had posted an ad on Craigslist. Craigslist, yeah. You were looking for a bass player. Posted in the personals, looking for love. Y- yeah. Taylor came along. Now that's a thing of the past. <laughs> um, we'll edit that out. Those were some good times. They were great times. We played We played all over South Florida. The Monterey Club. The Monterey Club, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Rockabilly place. That was a pretty cool place. It was yeah. like a tiki style rock and roll bar and there was like a tattoo shop next to it attached to it yeah so you can get your beer and you can get your tattoo your sleeve in the same place yeah i remember when we played there we we were kind of like fish out of water a little bit yeah until the very end until we played johnny be good do you remember that yeah with jason with jason yeah so uh, our friend amir was on drums amir texted me i haven't texted him back yet i'm sorry amir (laughs) we're very sorry Amir. um but yeah, I just I just look back on those times and like all the things that Amir used to say to us about music, about dating, about life, about money, because um, he had already been through it all. Yes. And he was trying to instill those wisdoms on us and we were like, no way. That's not true. I'm never going to get tired of listening to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's also important to realize that your your viewpoint of things changes as you become more accustomed to them. You know, I, I, I've been listening to the Rolling Stones since I was 12 years old, and I still love listening to the Rolling Stones, but now it's different. You know, now when I listen to Wild Horses, it's different than when I listened when I was 12, because, like, I've been there. I've felt that. You know, I know the lyrics now by heart. <laughs> well, yeah. when you're, you're younger like that, too, you're listening listening to it wanting to feel those things. Oh, I was stupid. Don't want that, Kurt. It's a bad idea. Yeah. 
And it, it's just funny how age changes the perspective because now we've been doing this a while, dude. Yes. We've been fucking doing this a lot, a while. No more, no more steak and shake. No, more. <laughs> we, can't, now, we can't eat like that anymore. Now it's protein shakes and push-ups and lifting. And, and you know what? I'm happy. I'm happy that way. I, I like it better than the, the drinking and the existential dread and all that nonsense. It's ridiculous. What is the thing from your 20s that you miss the least? Oh, that I miss the least? Yeah. Working at Target. Oh, fuck. I worked at Target too. We did not work at Target together. Yes. Uh, I worked at Target too. I think I probably uh, told this story on the podcast. I actually worked there twice. Yeah. And I no called no showed on <laughs> And you know yeah. what? They deserved it. They, de- they fucking deserved it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I worked there for about three, three years while I was in community college. Um, I worked the like 2, 3 a.m. until 9 a.m. shift, and I go to school all day and go to sleep at like 6. And the people I worked with were real nice. They were salt of the earth, regular folks like me. Um, but just the way the place was run was just, ugh. I, I, my heart goes out to anybody who works in retail. God bless you. <laughs> I did it for four years. That was like my college. <sighs> I worked at all kinds of places. I worked at Staples. I worked at Flanagan's Flanagan's yes (laughs) which looking back on it was a a good like first real job when I was 18 because it was actually Mm. my second job because I worked at a recording studio my first real job Mm. um but they do this thing when you go up to the table it's like a sales blitz right away where you're constantly upselling Mm -hmm. and I didn't get that at the time I didn't get that that equaled a bigger check which it would equal a, a bigger tip for me they were just trying to get me to say the shit and I would do it and I wouldn't think about it. But, um, I always hated every job that I ever had. Now I'm, I'm not really like that, but that's one thing I'll always be grateful for is all the jobs that I've had. It built character. It does build character. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So you got some new music coming out. I do a plethora of it. So what is the the first release that you're going to have coming out? Okay, so this requires a little backstory. Um, There was a time very long ago when I lived in Vermont. I was a little boy and I had hair a very long time ago. Before you were bald? Yeah, yeah. Before, you know, eight, age like 10 or 11, whenever that happened. (laughs) (laughs) So I was at this ice skating rink in Vermont and I met this kid, right? with this shock of bright red hair and his name was Julian and Julian was real cool. Julian liked Star Wars. I like Star Wars too. Not as much as Star Trek, but I like Star Wars. So we'd hang out and we'd play action figures, have a great old time. Um, he was actually the first person who introduced me to the concept of watching films on your computer. This was like 1999 and his brother had hooked up, somehow hooked up a VCR to like a Windows 98 PC and we watched The Matrix on it. It was mind blowing. Anyway, um, so we, you know, we used to be great friends, and then I moved, as I've always moved, and we lost touch. And then just a few years ago, Julian got back in touch with me and reconnected via social media, and turns out that he also, in his adulthood, in an adult life, had become a musician, um, which was just incredibly coincidental, and he has a great solo act called Orange Julius, or Orange, that's, Orange Julians, I'm sorry, it's based upon Orange Julius. That's a great... Uh... A great name. Yeah, so Orange Julians is his name. Look him up on SoundCloud. Plug, plug, plug. So he's great. And um, he's, you know, I started listening to the music he'd made. He had a track. He has a track called Something From Nothing that I adore. It's a, a banger, as the kids say these days. And so he said, you know, I'd love to collaborate with you sometime, write a song together. And uh, I was, you know, under contract with the record label I was with, so I couldn't do it. Once I parted from the record label, I said, okay, I'm ready. I'd love to work with you. He sent me a couple pieces, and the one that snapped out to me first and stood out to me, um, I set to work on and took about a month and a half. Um, He had a great percussive beat, piano pieces, synth. Um, I added more synth, bass, guitar, vocal melody, lyrics, harmonies, um, and created the song called Time Machine with him, and it's one of the best collaborations I've ever done. I think pretty much you and him are the only people I've successfully co-written with, except for uh, a gentleman named Rye, Ryan Frank, who started a group called Champagne Days, which is where I met Amir. So the three of you are the only people I've really written with successfully. So Julian and I wrote Time Machine, and so we started an act called Before Times, 
and the song is called Time Machine, and it will be out in the next few weeks. And then immediately after that, I'm going to be putting out a solo single of mine from Kurt Riley and Praxis called Free. So I'm pumping them out. Nice. Very cool. What inspired you to first start getting into music? Like, what, what drew you to it? What was the first thing where you were like, I need to do this? Women. Besides women. Oh, <laughs> besides women. Um, no, actually, uh, I I was just drawn to rock and roll and rhythm and blues and the glamour of dressing up and making yourself more than life. You know, I grew up reading about superheroes and these characters who transform their identities and undergo this sort of, uh, it's like a totemic thing where you take an object, you take a costume and you become a different person, you know? And I saw that in music too, these characters who were ugly, they had bad teeth, bad hair, bad skin, you know? And then they turn themselves into this thing, this fabulous, amazing thing. And millions of people are like, that inspires me to be myself too, you know, and sing in the car, you know? And, uh, I said, I can do that. I can definitely do that. And that was really arrogant, <laughs> but I tried. And um, I fell in love with songwriting. Songwriting to me, you know, I've learned instruments, I've learned how to sing, but all of those things are basically just a, an end, a means to an end to learn how to write songs, you know. Who were some of the early songwriters that you were really drawn to? Willie Dixon, all the chess record stuff, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Buddy Holly, Jimmy Reed, uh, the Rolling Stones, you know, Lennon and McCartney, Harrison, and then Ringo for Octopus's Garden and Don't Pass Me By. And then uh, <laughs> um, Mark Bolan, T-Rex, holy shit, yeah. Um, yeah, so many more, Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, uh, New Wave stuff, you know, Adamant, um, Missing Persons, Gary Newman, definitely, Joy Division, uh, Susie and the Banshees, it just goes on and on and on, but yeah. You were the person who taught me how to write songs, dude. <laughs> oh shit. I appreciate that. Thank you. Because I, I got uh I got that iPad mini for Christmas one year. Yeah. And I got a little interface that would plug into it and I would send you these thirty second clips and you would tell me, Ah oh, no, that's no good or that's good. <laughs> Try and explore that idea more. Yeah. And it really uh it really pushed me until I started really cranking him out because I had a, a very productive period probably when I was like 21, 22, where I yeah. wrote maybe 30 or 40 songs. Yep. yep. And um, it was definitely because of you and you listening to them and kind of guiding me. And, and I would just email them to you. And it was like you left me to my own devices pretty much to try and push me into it. And that was super helpful, dude. It was it, it, a huge impact on the way that I write today and the way that I listen to things. Um, and you always really guided me on that. And w would you say something like that is, is th that kind of thing instinct or is it something that you have to hone and develop or is it both songwriting or judging songwriting? Mm. Um, I think it's something that takes a bit of both. You have to have an innate ear for melodic hooks for strong melodies, but you do have to hone it. It's it's not usually something that, you know, even Brian Wilson, you know, started off with, you know, it's like fun, 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 things like that, which are great. Yeah. But you don't start off with pet sounds. No. Nobody does. I don't care. So, yeah, it's a muscle you got to train, but the talent, the seed of promise has to be there. So if there's a young so songwriter who has some kind of gift or they have that seed, what would you advise them doing? Work it. Practice, practice, practice. Write a song all the time. Constantly write. Have new experiences because that refills the well from which you draw when you write. You can't just sit in your room. I mean, I have, but... <laughs> um, and another thing, think outside the box with your songwriting. If you're stuck and you can't write a song, write a song about how you can't write a song. You know, go outside of your head. Don't let yourself be boxed in. Um, combinations are super important. Say, I want to write... Uh, a country, you know, I don't know, a country synth song. I want to write a hip-hop metal song. Just throw things together and see what sticks, because the greatest movements in music have been combinations. Rock and roll was just country and western and rhythm and blues pushed together, and that was revolutionary for 1956, you know. 
punk rock was just Chuck Berry songs backwards. <laughs> just really fast. Just really fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So yeah, be, be super creative. Imagine you've got a white canvas and you're just going to splatter Jackson Pollock style all over it. Don't be afraid to be nuts. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's hard to do, especially when you get... I, I think writer's block is kind of a myth almost. Uh, I mean, it's a thing. I've had it. But, but you can circumvent it. Yes, that that's what I mean. Yeah. So I guess what I mean by it's a myth is it's really you're getting in your, your own head about the act of creating. And you kind of box yourself. That's when you box yourself in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I will say, like I said, there is a, it's like when you're playing a video game, if there's a progress bar or a life bar, you can sort of use up your songwriting inspiration bar, but it's not gone. Songwriters have like this paranoiac fear that, oh God, I've done it. I've written my last great song. Oh no, that's not how it works. Like you use it up and then you go do other things. You have a relationship with a wonderful person or you go out and explore nature or you have just a life event. You have a child or something. It builds it back up. It doesn't have to go away. That's, that's nonsense. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. It's, I've gone through phases here and there over the years, like, I, I didn't really do any writing for most of the time that I've lived in Nashville other than Gina, Gina, Gina. Which is damn good. Thank you. Listen I to that. Gina, 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 people. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, uh, I've written a couple of songs once coronavirus kind of started, like after a month or two into it, I, I just got so bored because I wasn't driving for Uber or Lyft and I was mm. working sporadically at the radio station. Um. And I just kind of sat back and it was a, a much needed break to clear my mind because I've been flying so hard in Nashville trying to have a career really the, like since I've graduated high school that I didn't really take a break or like a time to appreciate the fact of what I had. And I was meditating every day at the beginning of this because I knew, at, of course, in the beginning, we only thought that this was going to be two weeks and then it was 60 days. It'll just, it'll disappear one day. It'll be magical. Yeah. yeah. No shit. Um, but uh, I think kind of clearing my headspace and it almost forced me because I had nothing else to do except to write. And I just wrote a couple of songs and it felt good to finally just do it. Exactly. Because that's all it is. It's just doing it. Right. Doing it for yourself is the best motivator. Even past doing it for money or doing it for a woman or somebody you love. Doing it for yourself. Those can be hindrances too. It depends. Yeah. I'd say the greatest hindrance when it comes to songwriting is fear of change. Like the only constant is change, right? That's the big joke. So, you know, you can say, well, I wrote this type of song and I'm really good at writing this type of song and I'm 21 and then you're 28 and you're like, well, I write like this. No, you don't anymore. You're 28. You have new experiences, new techniques. Evolve. Be comfortable with your change and your evolution. You know, it's like asking... I don't know, Queen to write something like they did in 73, but it's 1988. You can't do that. You got to write like it's 88. You know, push, keep going. Bowie was always really good at that. He was not afraid of jumping into the new, leaning into it, even if he looked stupid, you know, which even he did sometimes. You can't be afraid of leaning into what's different and trying it because at least you tried it. Maybe it looks dumb. That's okay. At least you did it. You're not like some guy playing the oldie circuit who doesn't ever change and he's playing his three songs, you know, from 50 years ago. Playing on a cruise ship. Ugh, no. No thanks. Playing greatest hits. Yeah, it, it, and that's the other thing, dude. I like, we don't know when live music is going to come back right now. It could be a year. It could be two years. Yeah. And I've pretty much accepted the fact that it, it might be a while before I ever play live again. And that kind of motivated me to focus more in the studio and all of this and like produce more. And I got a new podcast. You guys should check out man of science, man of faith was Zach Zachary Lehman. He's a writer, my best friend in the whole world. Brilliant we, mind. We break down all kinds of shit, like our favorite albums, movies, episodes of TV shows, and just talk about why we love it. Um, but it kind of forced me into just trying to get creative with shit. I'm like, okay, I can't really do anything right now. So what can I do? And that exactly. was like, those are the things that I can do. Like the people that I regularly already see like Millhouse working on a song for him. He's finally coming up. 
Everything's coming up, Millhouse. Uh, Josh Norfleet, my buddy Kirk Morrow Jr., they've all got solo projects. I worked on one for Ned when he came down in January, which seems like two years ago now. Yeah. We're on Corona time. Yeah. But I don't know. I think this whole thing has really made me feel oddly very grateful because I've never truly been in a better life situation like externally than I am right now. Um, there's no big external forces that I'm having to, to fight against. And they'll come again because that's just the cycle of life. But I feel like right now I'm able to just focus inwardly. That's a good, a good time to do it is in Corona times. Yeah, yeah we have a, a stunning degree of privilege that our biggest problem right now is what to do with our time. Yeah, no shit. And you know what? I feel like part of the reason people are going so crazy is because as Americans, we don't really know what to do with free time. If we can't work, if we can't shit, even see the people we love. See, I, I had to go see my grandma the other day. We couldn't go into the nursing home. We were just outside of the window, like on the phone with her. It was nice to see her. You know, I love her. I miss her. Um, but it's all just very bizarre. We're living in an episode of the Twilight Zone now. Yeah, and I think it it's actually given people pause um, because when you have the time to reflect, you actually take stock at, you take stock of what your life is, what society is, and maybe you don't like what you see. Very true. So when are the aliens coming? I mean, it has <laughs> to be coming soon, right? That's next on the 2020 bingo card. Yeah, aliens. Where, where do you think it's going to fall? November, December, October? Oh yeah, it's got to be election time. You know, that's just November third. It's gonna be like be. They're, they come down that day. It's gotta like, be. Shit's yeah. gotten too hot on planet. Earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> the experiment is canceled. Well, what's fucked up is the government now openly says like, "Yeah, there's UFOs." Mm. When the whole time they're like, "Nah, that that's not real." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's stunning. I remember when I was a boy, um, I was quite into the 1990s ufology sort of thing, X-Files, you know, all these books about... Love X-Files. Cryptid zoology, cryptozoology and, you know, alien abductions and things like that. Um, I actually thought I was abducted for a while. Really? Yeah. For about 10 years, I had these visitations at night that would take place. What happened? Um, I was eight years old and I was asleep in my bed and... I woke up and I couldn't move. I was completely frozen. I couldn't even scream. I tried to scream. My parents were in the next room and they couldn't couldn't hear me. No sound came out. And then I saw this figure come around the corner in my room, this gigantic elongated figure, just inhumanly tall and gangly, super thin, and it had, you know, these giant black eyes that were completely empty and you know, like the abyss, and it got right in my face and it went like this. I passed out. Shit, dude. And that happened time after time for the next decade. I can't even tell you how many times. And then one day, I read about this crazy phenomenon called sleep paralysis that happens where you wake up during your REM phase of sleep and your body has locked your muscles so you can't move and injure yourself while you're unconscious. But you're still like in a half dream state, so the body becomes... It can't move and you're a little terrified because you're quasi-conscious and you're still hallucinating as if you were asleep. And you'd probably hallucinate and see what you usually read about, right? So I was reading about aliens when I was a kid. So I was convinced I was actually visited or whatever, but then I read about this, and I was like, oh, it's sleep paralysis. And as soon as I read about it, it stopped happening. Really? Yep. The mind is a powerful thing. It's crazy. I had that one time, but for me, it was, uh, it was I had a snake in my bed. There was a snake in my bed. I saw a snake in my bed. And I woke up and I went and like my parents heard me just like get up in the middle of the night and be slamming shit around. My dad came in. He's like, what's going on? And I was like, there's a snake in my bed. And he looks around and he pulls out uh, a pencil from underneath my pillow. <laughs> and he's like, it's a uh, Ticonderoga snake. Because it was like one of those Ticonderoga pencils. Yeah, yeah I remember those. And I, I've never, I still don't live that down. <laughs> well, no, you're right. The, the mind is incredibly powerful. It's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, aliens. It's going to happen, dude. 
I mean, it's never been closer to Adam. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I don't know. I think it's it's a fascinating topic. I think there's it's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting reading. You know, it's fun. Um, I think if there's anything to it, the most likely scenario is that they're just humans from the future who are trying to get back to us and figure out why they can't reproduce. That's a theory. Yeah, I mean. I, I definitely think it's something to do with humans in the future. Like, that would make the most sense because I was watching a video on this recently where the, this guy was talking about how um, the only way to really to have an actual UFO is to bend space and time and that UFOs are actually time machines. Ooh. Mmm. This makes sense now. Yeah. Okay. It was pretty trippy. Hmm. Very strange. But, you know, the truth is we'll probably nev- never have any fucking answers. Yeah, well, I don't know. We've we've discovered the answers to a lot of things that seemed uh, impossible to know. You know, we unraveled the human genome, <laughs> cured polio. Yeah. Learned that men are from Mars, women are from Venus. To be determined <laughs> on that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's it makes the most sense to me that it's, it's something like interdimensional, you know, whenever in the past when I've done like mushrooms or <laughs> eaten too much weed brownies, you start to experience a different plane of reality. Yeah. Yeah, that's I find that interesting too. I you know, I don't really partake in that myself. Um but it is interesting the whole like Terence McKenna notion that DMT is a molecule that your brain is built to take and all of this. It's fascinating. I'll get real conspiracy theorists on you. So (laughs) there's this Twitter account that I follow um, called Majestic 12, and they recently got banned from Twitter. Oh, Majestic 12, yeah. And um, they, they would release these document dumps of all their tweets, so I would just go through them. And one of the things that they talked about was how weed was actually put here by aliens for us to, to raise our consciousness. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, the illegality of marijuana has always troubled me and I don't even use it because it's based on a complete lie. Do you know the the story of, Oh yeah. About William Randolph Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, that son of a bitch rosebud. It's always about profit, dude. Seriously. Incredible. Yeah, I, uh, I'm hopeful for the future, though. I, I think what this is, like, the Renaissance came after the plague. Yes. <laughs> so, how long did the plague last for? <clears throat> the Black Death? Yes. Several hundred years. Oh, fuck. <laughs> God but, damn it, but, we're right at the beginning of but it. But this is the 21st century, right? And we're approaching the singularity, so events are speeding up. I mean, it was just 20 years ago that everybody used calculators and pocket watches, right? So Yeah. It's okay. We're speeding up. Maybe we'll oh, make God. it through this a little quicker. Jesus. I hope so. Yeah. But no, you're right. A renaissance always succeeds a, succeeds a, um, a dark period, of course. And uh, I think, yeah, this moment is the human race being told, this is your last opportunity to wake up and behave. This is what this is. If you don't, you're going to lose the planet. You're going to lose your species. You're done. That's what this moment is. How do you think on an individual level we can we can wake up, though? What can people do? Yeah, the difficulty with that is our, our governmental systems, of course, which, you know, we don't want to delve into too hardcore on the podcast. But um, our representation does not reflect our populace's actual opinions and desires. No, it's all based on greed and money. Yeah. And the precedent set there, at least in the United States, was, I think it was like 1897, Union Pacific Railroad versus something. It was a Congress. uh, It was a case that made it that Congress can accept uh, that corporations are human beings and are to be treated as such. And therefore, the money that they submit as lobbying is from a human being, not a corporation. So you can take a corporation's money and it's totally legal. And this is why you've got lobbying firms up and down D.C., getting whatever they want constantly. So their voices are a lot louder than mine or yours. Yeah. You know? Well, I wonder what all of us can do just as like individual, like on an individual level. Cause we can't, I mean, people are protesting and doing their own thing and trying to have their voices heard. But in addition to that, like there has to be something we can do 
I think other than, than protesting, um, by just trying to like make, maybe make our lives better, meditate more, focus on the people in our lives, you know, cause I, th- I think we get so tuned out in modern life and coronavirus has kind of stripped that away from us. The ability to just have the hustle and bustle of normal life. So people are just facing whatever, whatever their life actually is or was now for the first time, maybe since a time like World War II. Yes. Yeah. So I think the most important thing a person can have right now is empathy. Because, uh, you know, on the fundamental cellular level, every single person you pass is your brother and your sister. We're all part of the same family in one way or another. Um, you know, the homeless person you pass on the street, your boss, you know, that person who is rude to you, person behind the counter when you check out, they're all your family. And so treat them accordingly. Treat them with mercy and love and hope that they do the same. Empathy is the biggest thing that our society is missing right now as a whole, at least in America. Um, I think everybody is super focused on whatever their lives are, which there's there's a dark side to America. There was this guy I had on the podcast. His name is Val Lupescu. And I think he uh, he's from Romania and he left during like one of the communist regimes there. And he was talking about America because he came here when he was like 13 or so. So he has a different perspective on America. And he said, America is like a great experiment. Yes. And sometimes the experiments we do fail. But there's sometimes where they succeed greatly. And we innovate and we're able to do a bunch of different things and further the progress of humanity and all of that. But I feel like we've gotten so far away from that original American promise right now where we're dealing with every dark skeleton in our closet now. We're paying the bill. It's like America is running for president right now. (laughs) Yep. And people are losing their minds. I mean, crime rates are going up everywhere. People are desperate. Global pandemic. Economic destruction. Yes. When is when is Batman? When is the Justice League going to come? <laughs> well, you know, for a small loan of a couple billion, I will become Batman. I've already got the shirt. I just need the Batmobile in a cave and an Alfred. Let me see if I can borrow it from Thanks. Jeff Bezos. Yeah, just a small loan, Jeff. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, any great change in the past um, has come as the result of some kind of collective action be it a war or be it organizing you know like the labor movement like the civil rights movement um i don't advocate violence i don't think that's the way to go because it makes you play into the hands of your aggressors but people have got to band together you know we're all sort of stratified and balkanized along what party do you belong to what god do you believe in or don't you know and uh yeah we just need to realize that we're all really the same honestly if you look at it, <laughs> we're all in this together. We're all in this together. On that note, I'm really happy that this is happening uh, because I do feel like a bunch of change is going to come from it. It will. Yep. In ways that we can't even imagine. Absolutely. What's been your biggest takeaway from this personally? What have you learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know before? how much I treasure the people I'm close to in my life. I've had the opportunity to see friends uh, and family, miraculously. Um, You know, and there have been moments where they've all been unsure if they'll be alive at the end of this year, you know. Um, And there are people that I haven't spoken to for years that I've spoken to recently repaired old wounds, built bridges where I, you know, (laughs) caused destruction and strife, you know, and I've been able to reconnect with people I love across the country. Um, And that, that means a great deal to me. That's, that's super important. So this time has shown me the importance of that. You know, I've, I've been guilty of trying to be an island to 
Um, I think most people want to think that they're self-sufficient. I can do it myself. I don't need anyone, you know, and that yeah. can be true for a time, but I don't think it's healthy for the mind or the no, spirit. It's not, man. That And that's what I'm coming around to right now. I felt like because things are good externally for me, I stopped focusing so much on the internal, mm-hmm. um, which is super easy to do. And it's, it was something I, I was just thinking last night. I was listening to David Lynch talk about meditation and I just realized that I need to get back to it and become more focused, more focused than I have been on that inward thing. Cause I think it's okay to be an Island in that instance when you go within to explore, but it's not sustainable if you're doing that every single day, all day long and just boxing yourself out from, every person in your life yeah navel gazing is not healthy but i am i am impressed with with what you've done you know i mean the listener uh may not be aware but you know when we first met you were a different person and you have matured a considerable degree and you've been through your shit yeah you've, you've had your times but um you are more at peace than you've ever been in my yeah. opinion my outside perspective yeah um I would say a big part of it is I just decided to to dive deep into every like ugly part of my soul, you know, like those those things that we develop in self-defense just to get through the day. And eventually those the, the skills that I had that were what I like to call weapons, um I learned that those should only be used in like self-defense. You know, I, w- I was going in and just pointing my gun at people and guns of blaze and let's, let's take this whole room out. Yeah. And sometimes it worked and sometimes you get, you get bloodied, yeah. you get knocked down. Um, but it's been a real, uh, a real growth process for me. Uh, just deciding to go in that deep and see what I'm really made of and see why I am the way that I am. And it's been a challenge at times, you know, there was, there was a period of time for like three or four months where I lost contact with everybody in my life where I did not talk to anyone because I was going deep into it. I, I almost feel like I needed to, to do that back then. It was probably like 2017 ish and 2018, somewhere in there. I had just gotten fired from a leasing company I was doing super corrupt shit. I got fired for calling my boss a pill popping drunk, which was true. If the it, shoe fits. It, it, it definitely fit. And they were just up to a bunch of illegal shit. Um, I don't think I've ever told this story on the podcast. This is the first time I'm going to tell it. But I was working at this place. It's like this infamous uh, apartment complex in Nashville. I won't say what the name of it is, though, because I I don't want to have to go to court and <laughs> fucking talk about it. But what had happened was this uh, assistant manager was who I really didn't like. I We hated each other just because she was super needy. She always wanted attention. Um, she was going into vacant apartments during work hours with maintenance guys and having like gangbangs with them on the property at work and... She would always come back in and brush her teeth. Like as soon as she came back from lunch, she would brush her teeth. And um, they only fired her because we were so behind on work orders that if they would have fired the maintenance guys, one of them who was like the maintenance lead for the the whole company, we would have been completely fucked. And well, it's it, also quite typical and sexist. And what had happened was I, uh, I called them out on it. And that was really the beginning of the end. I made a big stink about it. I was like, this is fucking horrible and this is disgusting that you're doing this and those maintenance guys they just had so much shame around it you know what i mean they were embarrassed that they got caught and i again i did not like that assistant manager we did not get along but i was like if one person gets fired everybody gets fired that was my opinion of it and i will make no judgments on what they were doing it was fucked up that they were doing that at work and all that shit but whatever people are going to do whatever they do And things just started going downhill because I said, 
if you want to talk to me about anything, only talk to me about it in writing. And that's when it was over, dude. They were looking for anything. And of course, being the, the loud mouth that I am, especially back then, um, we were at this, this work event and, um, I was just like, yeah, she's a pill popping drunk. I don't like her. I don't trust her. She's horribly fucking corrupt. And I was just saying all this shit out in the open and, uh, people got real mad. Then I got fired. They were scared though. They were afraid I was going to file a lawsuit. I was sure to keep every fucking thing I had on them. I still have it. Bring it. I'm not afraid. But what I learned from that was never go up against a company. <laughs> and sometimes breaking even is a victory. And I ended up breaking even on that one. And that was really the start of me being like, okay, why did I stay in this situation for so long? Because I stayed there for like a year after all that shit happened. Holy cow. Yeah. So it was just this constant me fighting them over anything. They would fuck up. They would purposely not give me commission on shit. I would confront them about it. And it was just me... Constantly being in this role where I was allowing myself to be victimized so I could have something to fight against. So I could be fighting authority, fighting the man, fighting fighting the system. In this case, it was the woman. But um, it was a very uh, trying time period and that just set me... It was the end of my downward spiral at that point because I was like, my life is so far out of it and I realized I was like shit I stayed here for a year after all that stuff happened even though I was so morally opposed but I was living at one of their properties they had they had me you know what I mean they had me by the balls mm. and I I just learned that, that that's again the case where it's like I had a weapon I should have just gone straight to a fucking lawyer immediately and told them what happened because if they were doing that kind of shit and covering that kind of shit up Makes you wonder what they were doing tax-wise, mm. what they were doing with their numbers, what they were doing with the money, what they were doing to cook their fucking books. Because I saw all kinds of shady shit go down. They would do all kinds of deals with people. It was just very sleazy. But needless to say, they did not like me. They thought I was a crusader, and I was. <laughs> well, it is a... Um... A hallmark of yours to fight against authority and be distrustful of authority. And that is a very, very American attribute. And I think it's justified. I think authority should be questioned. I think authority should be suspect because power is an intoxicant. And when you have power, you may inherit it and think, oh, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to be good. But without checks and balances, without overseers, without watching the watchmen, you know, it's very easy for that to go to one's head and pretty soon you're having gangbangs in the apartment. I'm not saying that's everybody, but yeah, authority should be questioned. <laughs> it's human. It's almost human nature, dude. It, it just, one needs to have accountability. And upbringing is important too. I think if you teach somebody, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, you maybe consider, I shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea, you know? So, that's part of it, too. I think not everybody's had a great uh, moral set instilled into them. You know? Well, that's interesting that you say that. Because I feel like a lot of what's going on right now where we're seeing America rip itself to shreds, that's one of the things that it's due to. Yeah. Is, is like, I, as, as corny and as old-fashioned as it sounds, I think... Family really is one of the most important things. It's because it, it ends up being how you interact with the world. And if someone doesn't have like a, a good family, I'm not saying everybody that's out there right now is doing that. But I mean, from the top down, you know, I, I think there's just something so removed in American culture. I don't know if it's materialism or the quest for individual, like maybe the dark side of the quest for individualism, because there's a dark side that comes along with that too. Yeah. Ayn Rand. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of positives to it as well, but what, what we're experiencing, whatever the, the hangover is in America right now, we've been so used to partying for so long. We're paying the bill. Yeah. Just like ancient fucking Rome. The check has come due. Yeah. And, um, you know, on the, on the topic of family, um, 
That is so important. I cannot even imagine what it must be like to be in your formative years as a child and not be shown a proper example of what love is, what compassion is. To be treated with abuse, to be mocked, to be hurt. There are so many people out there who's never had anyone show them what it is to be loved. Kurt, you're, you're describing my childhood firsthand. I know, I know. <laughs> and that's, that's heartbreaking to me because you can't show love to others unless you've been shown it yourself, right? Dude, so, yes. And there's people out there who, you know, mom and dad were not there. Mom and dad were not there. Nobody was there. And no wonder you're angry at the world. No wonder you're hateful because nobody's shown you. It's like a dog that gets kicked too much, right? It's going to bark. It's going to be mean, you know? And that goes back to the empathy thing. You know, if you show love to others, if you have mercy to others, you know, you might make it a little better. It might be a better place. I had this moment of clarity when I was going deep into my shit after I got fired from that job where I took this personality test and it said in a room, if I was one of 100 people in the, in the room, 99% or 99 of the, the, the people, other people in the room would be more empathetic than me. Oh, <laughs> and that's when I was like, okay, that was kind of a wake up call because there is, I guess in some way there's some, life skills that you gain from that, but there's more negatives and positives. So I was like, okay, I have to somehow figure out how to get more towards the center so I can actually have interpersonal relationships. Yeah. But it's, it's a defense mechanism. Absolutely. It was. You build the shell so nobody else will hurt you. I mean, it makes sense. You know, it's, it's hard to maybe take that down and disassemble it and say, okay, I'm going to trust people now. Especially when you do that and then they bite you. It's like, yeah. oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, <laughs> you know? It's like, so it makes sense. I, I think it's just, uh, it's, it's rough. It's sad. And that's, that's why family is important. And that's why, as I said before, you know, on a meta perspective level, we are all a family, our species. And so if you treat other people like they're your brother and your sister your mom, your dad, your son, daughter, it would be better. You know, treat them with that filter. Don't treat it as like the jerk who cut me off in traffic. Yeah, it pisses you off, but maybe he did something bad that morning, that morning, or maybe he's sad about something, whatever. It's not worth it. Here's what I'll say about traffic. I have driven in <laughs> a ton of traffic now, and whenever people get mad at me, whenever they're honking at me, whenever they pull out in front of me, whatever – and they're just driving like dicks, I always assume that that person has to shit really bad. <laughs> you know, I'd Because say, we've all been there. That's a good guess. Yeah. That gives, it gives me solace, dude. Especially if you're in the proximity of a Taco Bell. That's a healthy guess. I just assume they're, they're, trying, they're trying to pull over to the nearest Walgreens, <laughs> dude. So it's, it's made me see them as human beings. That's good. I'm proud of you, Taylor. Thank you. Any final thoughts? Anything you want to express about this year? Anything you have coming out? What What are your final thoughts? Um, yeah, actually. Um, I, I don't think this is the end. I think it's the end of our framework of reality. I think it's the end of how we've experienced reality. I don't think it's the end of everything. I think it's... Uh, it's going to be a painful birth, but it'll be a new life, a new reality, and we just need to be fearless enough to walk into it and treat each other with compassion. Beautiful. On that note, can you plug all your social medias and tell people <laughs> where to find you at? <laughs> so on that, you know, hippie new age uh, note, here's my capitalist line. Yeah, so um, my website is kurtriley.com, K-U-R-T. R-I-L-E-Y dot com. And on there you can find the links to all of my YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, what have you channels. Um, and I'd really love to hear what you think about my music. Um, so go ahead and drop me a line, KurtRileyMusic at gmail.com. And thank you very much, Taylor, for having me on. I'm glad I could finally make it. Of course. You can find me on Instagram as the underscore Poptimist. Facebook is Taylor Berryman. Uh, Twitter as Dub Optimist. And if you are looking to sell any baseball cards, <laughs> I will go through your collection and buy some off of you. Yeah, no, I think I've got a Ken Griffey Jr. something in there. Fantastic. Next to my Batman Returns cards. I'll give it to you. Cool. Next. 